Hi, and welcome to the Boat Princess podcast. My name is Nikki Vo, and I'm your host. I am a boat owner, a marina owner, a director on the Marina Industries Association, and a huge advocate for boating. In this series, I'm sharing the stories from every nook of the boating industry with the intention of encouraging more women to join me and for more women to get behind the helm too. I want to share the experience and opportunities of boating, of the boating industry, and I want you to join me as I bring the conversations and answer all the questions you've had. Boating is not just for the glamorous and rich and famous. It's full of beautiful and interesting people making the most of our natural environment and getting out there, enjoying the waterways. So let's set off the lines, take over the helm and escape to the world of boating. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Boat Princess podcast. I know I get excited about my episodes, but this one I am super excited about. Um, Keeping Lisa's energy um, in a room is quite incredible. She's got an amazing, amazing energy that we're going to share with you today. Lisa Blair is an incredible sailor who has been the fastest person to sail solo, non-stop and unassisted around Antarctica. She holds five world records and she's just a bit amazing, really. So Lisa Blair, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Nikki. That was an awesome (laughs) intro. (laughs) But you are. You and I have seen each other at a few events before and I always... Definitely. I'm always blown away by your amazing energy. (laughs) look you got to be out there loving what you're doing in life and I've always had the opinion that if I'm loving what my work is then it's not work it's just living my life and so I bring that into my sailing and into my projects and into everything that I do yeah you really do you really do so and those projects are not the average projects okay they're minor what are you talking about (laughs) I mean, for goodness sake, the Antarctic. Why Why the Antarctic? <laughs> yes. Well, uh, you know what? I get asked this question all the time and I actually don't have a specific answer as to why Antarctica. I think it was like a combination of things at the time. I just finished sailing around the world with the Clipper race. Of course and, you had. Uh, well, yeah. you know, minor details, right? Um, and that was a crude race around the planet and I I learned so much and I had such a growth opportunity as a sailor and I'd only been sailing about a year before then as a deckhand um, working on a charter boat in the Whip Sundays. And so for me, that was like this eye opener. It was the first time I'd done sponsorship. It was the first time that I had, you know, sailed in the Southern Ocean or had a night watch or any of those things. And after that, I was thinking to myself, well, I've just done what A, I never thought was possible before for me and B, like that I've thought I would be even capable of doing. And here I am, a circumnavigator. Like, what else could I do? And I sort of came up with the idea that, well, if I can do it with crew, surely I can do it solo. And then to do it solo, you need to do something pretty remarkable. And I wanted to use it as an activation for my climate action message. And so Antarctica seemed like a natural flow on from that. And um, 
That does make sense. Yeah. Yeah, massive yeah. amount of sense for climate action in particular. Exactly. And yeah. also like it randomly kind of came about because I was trying to convince a complete stranger to lend me his boat to race in the solo trans-Tasman yacht race. Never met the guy before. And um, <laughs> and I was like, hi, my name's Lisa. I've just sailed around the world with the Clipper race and I want to borrow your boat to race across the Tasman Sea. Oh, by the way, I've never sailed solo before, but I want to do this race solo. Will you lend me your boat? And this guy's obviously saying, uh, no. <laughs> and then um and then he like threw out the idea that like if I wanted to do more records or races or like you know more ocean sailing that maybe if I combined that race which was run once every four years and it's about a 1200 nautical mile yacht race um and if I combined that race with like a bigger project, then I would be able to maybe get the sponsorship and buy the boat. Yep. And he had his eyes on this Antarctica record that this Russian sailor had set okay. in 2008, Fedor Konyakov. And so he said, go home, Google this guy, have a look at it and let me know what you think. And I looked it up and I saw that there was this guy who had sailed four times around the world solo. He had hot air ballooned around the world. He had dog sled teams to the North Pole, South Pole, done all these, he'd climbed Mount Everest four times, just the most incredible adventurer. And he'd gone and done this Antarctica trip and completed it in 102 days. And I looked at it thinking, yeah, nah, if I tried that, I'd probably never come home. Like I I honestly didn't think at that point, and this is way back in 2014, that that would be something I would ever be capable of doing. And that like, you know, it just seemed like a suicide mission. And so I kind of paused it, but I couldn't kind of shake that idea of like, what if, and what kind of boat would I need and how cold would it get? And so eventually I decided that, yeah, I'm going to gonna challenge that record. Wow. So let's, let's unpack a little bit of that, <laughs> shall we? Because, um, okay, first of all, through 2017, you do the all-female team Rolex Sydney to Hobart. Yes. Right? And you said that was just after your first yes. year boating, sailing. So. No. No, we're a little out of timeline here. Okay. So so 2014, I decided that I was going to do Antarctica. Yes. 2015, I was able to buy the boat with the help of my mum and uh, we bought it about a month before the Rolex Sydney to Hobart and so I whacked a team together and we raced it to Hobart. As and like they were a, all female? No, they no, were, they were a mixed a, team. That was a mixed team. And then I went off and did the first Antarctica attempt yep. in 2017 yep. and when I came back from that about a month and a half later, Later, I put together the with partnered with the Magenta Project. Oh, really? It was around. yes, it was right. the after. Um, and then we did the Sydney to Hobart with the all girl team and did a mentor program for women in sailing. Uh, and then I went on to do the Australia record, second Antarctica, and here we are. My goodness, planning in New were. Zealand. Actually, of course, they were the other way around. The yeah, Sydney to Hobart's at the end of the year. Yes, yeah, yeah. that makes so much And sense I left now. in like January 2017 for that yeah. project. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you left for that project. First Antarctica. First Antarctica. Yes. How did you feel when you left for that project? Great question. It was a bit wild actually because I never had 100% funding. Uh, I never have had 100% funding for any project. 
And so I'm doing absolutely everything I can to just get to the start line. And for me, that project took me three and a half years to get off the ground, to actually get enough funding, to get the boat refitted, to get it over to Western Australia. Um, And even the night before leaving, I don't think I got to bed until about 4 a.m. And then I was up at six because I was trying to download books and stuff like that, that I hadn't, that, you know, were just extras that I hadn't had time to do and fill out my border force paperwork. And just, there was just so many jobs and I'm just one person. Like I don't have like a full team, like the, a lot of the French sailors and stuff do. It's just me. Um, and a whole heap of awesome volunteers that sign up to donate their time. And so I was frantic that morning, just trying to make sure I hadn't forgotten anything, hadn't done something, you know, hadn't just ticked all those boxes. And we were just like saying, I was hugging everyone goodbye at like 9am and we cast off the lines for the boat and I'd been just so intent on just getting the boat out to the harbour to get to the start line that I'd forgotten to kind of even really consider what that would feel like. And as we kind of motored out or I was getting towed out initially, I sort of looked over at the break wall and in Albany in Western Australia, there's this um, like markets that happened that day. And it's like a really community hub right at the marina there. So there was hundreds and hundreds of people and there was kids with big signs up saying, good luck, Lisa. And like everyone was tooting their car horns and everyone had walked out the break wall to like see me off. And I got so overloaded with emotion. And at the same time, I, it was like the first time it hit that I was actually leaving yes like it wasn't this mystery thing I'd thought about and I tear up like I'm tearing up now talking about it but it wasn't this mystery thing that I was like this this long thing that I was still working towards like it was happening that day and the other thing with all of that was that I'd spent three and a half years planning for every worst case scenario in the southern ocean so what would happen if I dismasted if I lost my keel if I lost my rudder if I hold the boat with an iceberg what would happen if I broke my leg at sea what would happen if I cracked a rib like all of these scenarios what if I got the flu like just anything you could possibly think of and suddenly the reality was that I was going to go out and I was going to have to face those challenges Mm -hmm. and it was like that crushing like moment of like fear anxiety self-doubt like and I started having a panic attack oh my goodness yeah and so we were like motoring out and I just started shaking my heart rate elevated I had two volunteers on the boat that were helping me get the sails up and so they were busy doing that but I had like thousands of people on the foreshore watching me go and I'm trying to like cringeworthy smile like smile at them and wave and and not have tears pour down my face and like but internally I was freaking out like just insanely and it it took me about a few minutes and I as we were still murdering through all these people and I just remember reminding myself that it it was kind of like that self-talk of like you've got this like you've done the work you've you've ticked the boxes like you've got this Mm. and um and so for me I, I reminded myself that hey yeah you've gone through that process of procedure and preparation you've thought of all the scenarios you've got combat you know, techniques in place, procedures to help you stay safe in those different situations. Um, Now you've just got to go and enjoy the sailing. And so I had to like kind of remind myself. And once I had come to terms with the fact that it was happening like now, then it was just so much fun and so exciting. And I was like jumping up and down around the boat and running around and smiling and waving at everybody and just having so much fun with it. Um, But yeah, even like a few hours later as like the last of Australia fell behind the horizon and I probably wasn't going to see land until Cape Horn, which was about 6,000 nautical miles away. Which takes how long? 
Um, that would have been, well, for me on the first trip, it was 50 days wow. at sea. So, yeah. and I didn't see another human, another boat, anything in that time. Um, and so that, you know, watching, like it was sunset by that point and I was just watching Australia fall behind the horizon and I just took a minute on deck to just appreciate it and sit in the moment and enjoy the view and I had two container ships pass me and I just stood on the deck and I just stared at these boats just thinking, yeah, I probably won't see another boat for 50 days. And it was like that real coming to terms with the isolation that I was about to go and experience and the challenges and, and, you know, everything associated with spending up to three months in the Southern Ocean all on your own. Yeah, because, I mean, sailing solo, massive difference to sailing with crew. Yes. Why did you decide to do it solo? Initially, like very early stages, I decided solo sailing was something I'd be keen to to do, mainly because I'd been reading like Kay Cotty's book, Jessica Watson, Robin Knox John, like all these stories, and I just thought they were remarkable people having remarkable adventures. And then when I did the Clipper, like there was this thing, my skipper was brilliant, like he never held back on teaching me something I wanted to know. But there was always this thing in the world of sailing, especially as a girl, like this is a decade ago, where just learning things like how to fix an engine became really hard to learn or to find someone willing to teach you. And so I sort of thought, well, if there's no one else there, I'll have to figure it out and I'll have to learn. And so I decided that I'd try the solo sailing as a way of pushing me to learn more about sailing. And then the other factor is once I became like a captain of boats, I find when I'm sailing across a long distance with a crew, I'm more concerned about their comfort. Are they having fun? Are they safe than myself? And I lose that element of just enjoying the moment because my thoughts are consistently like, oh, Joe blows seasick today, so I'll take his shift. So then I'm doing double shifts anyway and I'm not getting sleep. And then um, Sally, she's, you know, she seems a bit tired today, so I'll take her shift tomorrow. And you know, and just that crew management, um, while, you know, I really enjoy sailing with people, I do find on the longer stretches I enjoy them solo because I, I only have to worry about me. Mm. And with something like Antarctica, I was comfortable putting myself in a real position of risk because I knew what I was capable of. But taking other people down there, putting them in a potentially risky situation in the Southern Ocean where anything can happen, I wasn't comfortable with that. Wow. That is so you. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's just that you... Like with your whole your whole ethos now with the climate action, yeah, that you're putting something else before you. Yes, exactly. You know? Yeah, and, and that is, um, yeah, just the, the the fact that you're thinking about the crew all the time rather than yourself. Well, the crew That's aren't just... there to serve me. It's as much their experience, and also like I think the big thing with people going, especially on their first ocean passage. You want to make sure that they have a really positive experience so that they go on to do more of it because it's an incredible world out there. And there's so many bad experiences people can get in those first time sailing that stop them from wanting to do more. And so I wanted to make sure that, you know, anyone coming on these trips, it's fun, it's lively. If you need a rest, I'll take your watch. Like, you know, and it's that dynamic. But also like if I've got crew and I'm in a storm, 
I'm not sleeping. It doesn't matter whether it's my watch or not. I'm making sure they're okay or I'm on the one on deck instead of them because I'm willing to take that risk. I'm not willing to put another person in that position. Um, So, yeah, I think the solo sailing sort of stemmed from that. Um, And things like engine maintenance and stuff, like I really didn't start learning that until I bought a boat and had things break in the middle of the ocean. And then I'd phone a friend and say, hey, so, uh, you know, I just had my starter motor blow up and I had a meter high flames in the middle of my boat. And uh, can you organize a new starter motor to be sent to me and then throw it to me from boat to boat? And then I would have to work out how to uninstall a starter motor and put the new one on. And I'd never done it before. But, um, you know, it's, it's the attitude you take to sailing is a big, big player in how much joy and experience you get out of it as well. So yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned a couple of things in that in that scenario. One was uh, Kay Cotty. I just need to mention to our listeners that we've done three interviews with Kay Cotty. <laughs> Kay is she awesome. Is amazing, isn't she? Um, and uh, they are thoroughly good podcasts to listen to because she, just like Lisa, is an amazing, incredible woman with a confidence. Um, but inside, she's very shy as well. So it's it's a really interesting um, set of interviews we do with her and all the things that she's done with sailing and beyond um and then you you've gone from crew to solo you've talked about being on a boat with crew Mm -hmm. tell the listeners about when you're on a boat solo how do you keep it moving while you're actually living normally so you're sleeping you're eating all those sorts of things because they would have no idea how you do that (laughs) so it's quite a yeah it's quite a unique strategy that I employ and and like one of the biggest factors for me is safety trumps everything so it's not I'm I'm not putting the boat in a position of risk and making decisions because I want to sleep a bit longer or something like that. Um, And so for me, the collision regulations require we keep a good lookout by all available means. So that can be our radar, AIS, but it's also our eyeballs. And so for me, when I'm near known hazards, so anywhere close to land, anywhere near major shipping lanes, known traffic zones, fishing areas, reefs, islands, rocks, anything like that, um, I won't sleep for more than 20 minutes at a time. So I'll do a sort of four to six hour window of micro sleeps at 20 minutes each interval. But every 20 minutes I'm scanning the horizon for traffic and I'm looking at the instruments, I'm checking the radar, and then I try and go back for another 20 minutes sleep. And the goal of that is like if you've ever kind of gotten up to go to the toilet in the middle of the night, you don't kind of wake up completely, but you're coherent enough to make safe and smart decisions. And so you kind of wake up enough to check everything's safe and then you can fall back asleep quite okay. It normally takes me about two to three days to adjust and I go through quite a lot of headaches and discomfort in that period. And then your body's so chronically fatigued that you can sleep in a 20-minute interval. And so it might be, it it often will take three or four 20-minute sleeps before I start getting sleep. And then I might get five minutes here, 10 minutes there. And so over a 24-hour window, I'll have occurred roughly three to four hours, sometimes two hours, depending on the weather and all those other factors of actual sleep in Mm. all of that's broken sleep. Um, So for me, I find it's more of an endurance game than anything. It's that personal body management. It's the management of the boat for a long trip and making sure it's not 
um, you know, being overloaded or overstressed unnecessarily. Um, but that sleep management is absolutely key to success. Um, when I did like Antarctica, for example, uh, that was, uh, you know, going to be three months at sea. And so in that time though, I'm in the Southern Ocean and I'm in the Southern parts of the Southern Ocean. So I was sticking between 45 degrees South and 60 South. And so occasionally in a few locations, there would be a cruise ship that would come within like 200 nautical miles of me on the AIS. Um, once I saw two fishing boats off an island that I passed, but generally there was like no one there apart from Sea Shepherd and maybe the Japanese whalers. Um, and I'd spoken to Sea Shepherd before I left and notified them of my position and gave them my tracker. Um, but they were dead in the water until they found a whaling ship at the time. So uh, it wasn't, you know, there weren't, there wasn't a safety net from them there. Um, but it meant that I could increase my sleep up to sort of 40 minutes generally, which felt like a holiday. And if I was in a really bad storm and I was just hove to and drifting through a storm, I would normally try and get like an hour to an hour and a half. But you're also then trying to sleep in a storm. So you're getting tossed into the roof of your boat, like, constantly like airborne and stuff in your bunk because the boat's getting tossed around in those weather. So the sleep deprivation for me is the biggest management that I have to go through. Um, the boat runs off autopilot when I am resting and sleeping and generally I'll run her off autopilot about 98% of the time. Um, the reason for that is because I'm doing that energy management the whole time. So I'm consistently maintaining, am I mentally sound? Am I physically sound? Do I need rest and recovery? Do I need to increase my sleep time over performance? Um, you know, and even like making judgment calls on when to shake a reef out or um, put one in and a reef for those who don't know is when you shorten the sails for the stronger winds. Um, I'll make judgment calls on, okay, I can see a week's worth of weather. I'm in a storm that's giving me 60 to 80 knots of wind at the moment. So I'm down at my fourth reef and my storm trysail, um, uh, sorry, my storm jib. And then I've had one day in a high pressure system before the next storm hits. And they, they call these storms polar cyclones. And uh, and so they're, they're massive, like, you know, they're, they're big, they're cold, quite often dumping snow or hail or sleet on the boat. Oh my um, yeah, I know, lots of fun, right? Come <laughs> sailing with Lisa. <laughs> and so the energy deficit to ho hoist my sail all the way up for the 12 hours of sailing I might get before the wind arrives again um, in an unstable weather pattern where you're getting squalls coming through and you're having to change the sails a lot. And for me, it takes me almost 40 minutes to shake the reef because it's wow. such a big sail and it's yeah. so over-engineered that it's really heavy. Um, and so that for me, I would sometimes just go, okay, well, the boat can go at five or six knots for a day. And then when the next storm hits, I'll be doing 10, 12, 14, 16 knots as I'm surfing waves and I'll make up that time. Um, so I generally just tried to maintain a speed over six and a half knots. And then if I, I was hitting that, I was cool to just leave the sails down and, and focus on energy recovery in the person. Um, so, yeah, and then all my food's freeze-dried. So it's all super simple, boil in the bag. I take extra stuff to, like, mix it up and make it kind of flavorful and, and interesting. But most of the time I just don't have the energy to even contemplate making a meal. Like yeah, I, I imagine. I, it, there just wouldn't be the point in taking stuff because I wouldn't use it. Yeah. Um, and so it's a constant game of chronic fatigue and going, am I too tired to function properly or can I 
squeeze in another three hour block of 20 minutes sleeps here and I get back to a healthy functioning state but that healthy functioning state is like four to six hours of sleep so it's not it's not great (laughs) no so I mean that must really affect your mental state as yes, well. Yes, massively. That lack of sleep. Massively. Because be. we all, as uh, you know, those of us that have been lucky enough to be mums, we know that we're, we've had that fog yeah. of, of lack I of sleep. I call it boat brain. Oh, it's... Um, <laughs> Instead of baby brain. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a different world. And, and it makes you just a little bit crankier, a little bit less tolerant, a little bit... A little bit of everything, right? Massively so, yeah. So how do you, I mean, you've got nobody else to handle that, so you can just yell at yourself if you feel like it. But but how do you manage that? It's more, I guess, I've just learned now after, you know, I've sailed about 55,000 miles solo now, so I've done quite a big chunk of it, um, twice around Antarctica and once around Australia. Um, But the... The, the biggest thing is I've learned my trigger points when I'm hitting that cranky mode kind of thing. And what happens I find, and I don't have like, I haven't had a chance to speak to scientists about this. It's just my own kind of um, conclusions. But what I've noticed is that when I get so chronically fatigued, I lose the ability to regulate my emotions. Okay. And so I get to a point where I call it my two-year-old toddler hissy fits. <laughs> like I fully threw my toys and I have a hissy fit <laughs> at sea. And thankfully no one's there to witness it. But I will be like putting a reef in the sail, pulling a rope, and the rope will have like a little twist in it so it'll catch on the jammer for like half a second. I shake it, it comes free, and I can pull it through. But that half a second's like the straw that broke the camel's back. And suddenly I am, you, and I'm saying all these bad words, screaming at the boat for not doing its job because it knows all I want to do is put the sail in so I can go back to bed and I'm freezing cold and it's pouring rain and I'm getting smashed by waves and I'm really not happy. And then what happens is like I'll shout and scream. Sometimes I'll just break down into tears, like falling, like full, like (gasps) sobbing, like tears. And I'm not upset. I just can't regulate that response of my body. I'm absolutely internally thinking this is ridiculous. I'm like losing my mind out here. And I'll be this complete sobbing mess while I'm still putting my reef in and working my winches and sorting the boat out. And once I've calmed down, normally takes about 10 or 15 minutes, I'll feel so guilty that I'll have to apologize to the boat, give it a little pat, say, I'm really sorry, you're doing an amazing job, you're keeping me alive out here, thank you, Climate Action Now, and I'll give it a little pat and then I'll go inside really sheepish and and I'll hide from the weather and I'll try and focus on sleep over performance and so it might be one of those days that I just leave the sails down for a day and don't worry about putting them up. And, um, and I'll try and focus on that recovery. And once I get another good day of sleep in, then I'm back to perfectly normal, totally positive, happy-go-lucky, the world's wonderful, doesn't matter if I'm getting absolutely punished at sea, I'm good. Like, it's, And it's really the sleep is key to that mental health in the middle of the And I think that applies to life in general. Like it doesn't, it's not just sailing but if we're not looking after our bodies then our bodies can't look after us yeah and um and that applies to the mind as much as anything else exactly right um and those of us who love our boating and we do we do have a relationship with our boat but yours must be massive I feel like I've left my kid behind when I hop off at the end of a record like I get this real deep like sadness in my gut and I'll 
wake up a dozen times that night and feel like I need to go to the marina to check on the boat but I can't because I'm in some town somewhere in the middle of the night and like yeah it is a really weird especially like after I dismastered on the first record and arriving into Cape Town after nearly losing the boat nearly losing my life like so many times um and then just that emotion of like I've survived. I still have a floating boat. She's in pieces, but she's floating. And then like just the battle that that boat had to go through and that I went through to like survive that um, was like really like, yeah, I felt so bad for leaving the boat. But yeah, yeah, she's used to it now. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So so those moments that you've had out there, those near-death experiences, how does that give you a different perspective on life now? I think the thing, particularly if we talk about the, like the dismasting situation, I didn't understand um, how traumatic that experience was because I was so busy fighting to survive it that I didn't really get time to kind of address it. Um, and so emotionally it wasn't until later that it really hit me what I'd gone through and how close I was to losing my life like so many times that night. Um, and that had an echo effect or, and it impacted my, it, it, it had a massive long-term impact on me, like the PTSD and the, the, just the mental wellness associated with my time at sea. And I was so struck. I was still just on that struggle street the whole time. So I'd like the mask broke at 6 PM and it, put a hole in the side of the boat over how did it break what why did it break um it ended up being a shroud snapped but it was we later found out it was electrolysis so electrical cable up the mast chafed through after the time at sea all the rigging wire was four months old shouldn't have snapped um but the electrical current consistently going through the mast um had aged the stainless about a decade and then it failed um in some pretty disastrous eight meter seas wow jessica Um, are you listening right now (laughs) (laughs) you know do you know jess and brian gatt oh absolutely oh yeah 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 yeah. so brian was the one that assessed the boat when i got back there you go see brian is the man the the guru the absolute guru and there's a chapter in my book that he wrote uh with the riggers on the cause and effect of electrolysis in cruising boats um that anyone can go and read uh if they buy the book facing fear (laughs) yeah yeah so they're maritime protection services and again we have interviewed jess gatt as well so you can listen to her podcast as well but okay so that it's electrolysis that's caused that it's broken the mast yeah So before we continue, a little interlude from us here at The Boat Princess. If you'd like to be a guest on The Boat Princess, simply send us an expression of interest to our email at info at theboatprincess.com or send us a DM on Instagram. We are The Boat Princess on Instagram and uh, we'll send you our media kit and details as to how we work. The podcast is incredibly popular worldwide and there is nothing like getting 45 minutes or so of somebody's ears entirely dedicated to what you're trying to achieve or perhaps what your company is trying to achieve. So we look forward to hearing from you. It's electrolysis that's caused that. It's broken the mast. Yeah. So the mast sheared off at deck level. Um, So in all my my pre-stuff, I'd spoken to riggers, shipwrights, people who'd lost masts, 
And I just tried, like, because there's not a lot of free available information around dysmastics. Like, it happens relatively frequently in the world of voting, but but no one really like communicates what they did or how they dealt with it. Or so there wasn't a lot of information out there. And what I did find was most people were saying it would probably break at the first spreader because you would lose that support and that's where it's at. But because of the electrolysis was going through the mask itself, it also corroded around that mask collar. Yeah. Um, and so it snapped clean at deck level. There was nothing Jeez. sticking out of the boat anymore. Um, and it fell to the starboard side into the ocean. And I had sort of, I think it was my third reef up and my storm jib at the time. So my two head sills were on furlers at the bow of the boat furled away. And I had gone through the process of bolt cutters, battery operated angle grinder with cutting blades with a spare battery, always primed, ready to go in a go bag. I'd put together a dismasting kit, which had um, like a, a big flathead screwdriver, a multi-grip, um, a pair of needle nose pliers and a hammer and this little kit. And that was with the intention of like knocking out the split pin and disconnecting the rigging rather than trying to cut the rigging. And what happened was like, you know, it was the middle of the night thousand nautical miles south of Cape Town in the middle of the Southern Ocean, so six to eight meter sea is rolling over the boat. Um, as soon as the mast snapped, the boat flipped 180 degrees around, so so like sort of flat ways. So the mast and everything became an anchor. And so the waves, the, the six to eight meter seas were hitting Oof. the debris in the water first, yep. driving the tail end of the mast that it's still kind of tangled with the rigging and everything up onto the deck of the boat. And then like the wave would hit the hull of the boat and throw it out from under the mast. <gasps> and so it was creating this really aggressive kind of push-shove seesaw motion. And it was so aggressive, it started to literally saw the boat in half. And so like time was quite limited because yeah. of that. But it, in the pitching, heaving deck, it didn't matter that my bolt cutters were sized for that kind of rigging. You couldn't get any purchase on them. The minute you try and jump on them, a wave would drag you down the deck of the boat. Like it was just an impossible thing. There were waves because the boat was now anchored. The waves were breaking over the top of the boat. So every sort of 30 seconds to a minute, I would be up to my chest in white water. Oof. So using a battery operated angle grinder that's not waterproof is not going to no, work. Not going to do that. So I ended up falling back onto the little dismasting kit with the screwdriver and that that worked, but that was slow. And so then about three hour, two to three hours in, I'd managed to finally get the backstay wire off and the inner forestay. You but, must have been exhausted. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And the inner forestay was interesting because the minute it came free, given that it's got the furling drum and the extrusion up the forestay wire plus the sail wrapped around it, it was like a spear. Yeah. And it was getting whipped around the deck of the boat like an angry snake. And if I had been close enough that it hit me, it probably would have crushed a rib or something. And so I had like my perfect James Bond moment where I had to wait for the boat to like lean one way I ran up the deck of the boat and then like grabbed the furling drum through it as the boat then launched the other way and I ran up the other side like to get back to safety and and like get out of harm's way but like all the safety rails were ripped off completely on starboard so there was no safety on that side of the boat that was also the side the waves were coming over so thankfully they were pushing me into the port railings you couldn't be tethered all the time because of all the ropes and the debris across the boat. And I still had this mast stump that was getting pushed and shoved and with jagged bits of metal and stuff on the deck that you had to get past to get forward. So you'd have to kind of make a decision, a conscious choice to unclip myself 
and run past the mast and rigging up the deck of the boat in the night in the Southern Ocean, in freezing temperatures. If you were overboard, you're gone. That's it. Yeah, you, there's no done. recovery from that. Yeah. Um, and then I'd retether on the other side when I'd get to kind of a, a clear zone. But like these waves were like I, I still struggle to to kind of describe it properly because it's like being hit with a freight train. Yeah. And so the wave will hit and it didn't matter how strong you are, you can't hold on. And so it'll hit and I'll be huddled at the bow of the boat on the port side trying to disconnect the stay wire and I'm just suddenly like back at the shrouds like and the mast is like right near my head dragging like stabbing forward and then you've got to scramble and crawl forward again and try and hook yourself in and try and get your tools there and not lose anything overboard and so anyway it was like three hours of this at this point and when I got to the four stay wire the way the mast had fallen it blocked my access to the split pin and because you've got all the extrusion all the sails all that crap there you can't get to the actual wire to cut it or to try and cut it and so and it was actually Kay Cotty that said this at the end she's like why didn't you think of using a a hacksaw and I was like that's the only thing I didn't think of because I thought it would take too long and in reality it was probably going to be faster than what I was doing but I didn't know that at the time and I I was just in kind of focused survival mode Um, but the way it had broken because that was blocked I worked out that I had two possible choices to disconnect this four-stay wire and one was to jam my like left arm underneath the furling drum and the all the debris that's there and put my screwdriver in the fitting and with my right hand I could wrap it and basically hug the furling drum around the rigging and smash it out with the hammer from from that angle but because of the way that inner force they had come free I knew if I did that I'd probably crush my arm or break a rib and then I might be in a position where I can't save the rest of the boat yeah the only other choice I had at that time with the tools and equipment and my mindset and, and where I was with everything, the only thought I, I had was to climb over the safety rails and sit down on the bowsprit at the front of the boat. But I can't hold on when I'm on the deck of the boat, let alone sitting on the prodder out yeah. the front on that stick that extends out the front. Yeah. Um, so I knew that if I didn't do that, the boat would sink, period. Like the hole was so big already and, and she was – getting worse quite rapidly by that point. And I knew um, if I went out there, I probably had a 50-50 shot of survival. And so I went inside and I called my shore manager up, Jeff, and I told him like an update. And Jeff's like this super, like just bubbly, enthusiastic. He's a master for and like just, you know, been around ships for his whole life. And so I told him all the updates and he's like, well done, Lisa, we're behind you in Australia. And I'd like made national news across Australia at like 5 a.m. that morning. And he's like, just keep at it, you got it. And then I said to him, I've got to go out on the bowsprit. And he understood straight away. He's like, oh, okay, I understand, I understand. And at this point I'd been exposed to the freezing cold for about three hours. So I was going into hypothermia. Yeah. The ability to hold tools, I couldn't feel anything. So I, I had imagine. to look physically at my hand to know it was shut and things like that. Like I couldn't wow. use, like I was losing that mobility and I could feel the brain fog coming on. And there were moments where I'd just be crouched and then like come to and like go, oh, what was I doing again? Like the, that fogginess, that lost feeling was there. Um, and... I knew also that if I was washed off the boat and in the water, I'd have less than 10 minutes of survival. Mm -hmm. Um, And there was no door to hang on to, was there? 
there was nothing. <laughs> the power rail. That Titanic moment just wasn't there for <laughs> no, you. No, I didn't have a door. I didn't have a, a prince to get me a door to lay on. I didn't have a Leo. <laughs> no, I had climate action now and she survived me. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it, it, it was just hectic and, and like, that that decision and that conversation, like I had to say to him, like if my PLB is activated, it's because I'm gone. Like don't come and rescue me. I'm, that's my only communication tool to tell him I'm lost at sea wow. and to tell my family that I'm lost. And like we talk about morality at sea quite a lot and, and like I talk about it with my family and I've had firm conversations. I set up a will and I did all of that stuff before departure with the full knowledge that I'm going out and doing this with my own free choice I'm putting myself in this position. I would never expect anyone to rescue me because that's not an option when you do a record like this. I wouldn't want someone to put themselves in a position of risk to aid me for doing this. And um, But it's very different to have those conversations and to be comfortable with the risk you're undertaking because you're at least living your dreams and, and you're out there having a life. Like, you know, you're not letting it stop you. Yeah. Um, but then to crawl back up on that bow and like go out there with the full knowledge that in the next five minutes... I might not be alive. Yeah. Like that's. That's scary. Yeah. That was, that was the big thing for me. Yeah. 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 <gasps> yeah. So. I'm tearing up talking about it again. I, I can imagine. <laughs> I can imagine. I, I should mean that probably helps, does it? Talking about it. I mean, I do a lot of keynote speaking and stuff now where I'm talking about it quite a lot. Um, And I tear up on stage every time because I think it's really important that if I'm going to share that story, I share it with authenticity. And to do that, you need to feel that again. Um, But, yeah, like I I was able to get out there. I was able to stay attached to the boat and free the rigging, but I was getting completely submerged underwater, holding your breath for, you know, 10 seconds to 15 seconds at a time. As this wave just tries to rip you off and you're just using everything you've got to stay attached. Yeah. Um, and But you're still reacting. Yes. You're not thinking necessarily you're reacting to this situation. And for me, it was really that preparation and planning that gave me enough logic to process the situation fast enough to deal with it and survive it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, after that night and the mast tore off the deck of the boat when I finally got the last pieces of rigging free and sank in the Southern Ocean and I had a retrieval line on it, but because the boat was getting lifted up eight metres at a time and the mast is like an anchor, it just snapped that line and it yeah. bent the rail and everything that it was attached to. It snapped the line and I lost everything overboard. Um, the only thing I'd managed to salvage was my boom. Yeah. And so three days later I rendezvoused with a container ship to do a fuel transfer and um, they collided with me and nearly sank the boat in as many oh, days God. and it's a whole nother scenario that took place. Um, and then eventually I built a new mast with the boom and jury-rigged and uh, made my way to Cape Town 10 days after the initial kind of emergency. But it was this weird feeling of like just being like lost and adrift yeah. and like yeah. my whole focus for three years, three and a half years had been that goal and because of an electrical cable chafing through, I'd gone through all of that. Yeah. Um, and it was just like I just felt like I I just lost my baby. Like I was grieving I for, for all of yeah. that. But by the time I got to Cape Town, I was so stubborn. And as you, as I'm sure you've 
learnt by now. I'm a pretty <laughs> stubborn person when I set my mind to something. Um, I don't think you achieve what you achieve without being <laughs> a certain character. Um, but yeah, I decided by then that I, if I could do it with one stop and set the women's record, I wouldn't yeah. get the men's record, but I could still yeah. go back to the where I just mastered, repair the boat, go back, finish the trip. It took me two months to repair the damage to the boat because it was yeah, that so expensive. Yeah, so you kind of landed on land for two months in a place that you don't really know. I didn't know anybody. And you didn't have any contacts there, all that sort of thing. So How, how did how did that go? Yeah, well, thankfully, like a lady here, um, Linda Freilinken Anderson, she um, is very active on a social media group we have in Australia called Women Who Sail Australia. And there's a global version of that called Women Who Sail. And then in a lot of the different countries around the world, there's Women Who Sail France, Women Who Sail New Zealand, all this. And it's just a really welcoming like group of women who support women who want to get on boats. And so she put a post up saying, hey, Lisa from Australia has landed. She's dismasted. She's got $0, nowhere to stay, no way out. You know, can anyone help her? And this lovely, incredible family is like, there was about 15 people on the dock none of them I'd ever met before welcoming me in um, they brought champagne down they took me out to dinner they let me stay in their spare room Amazing. and then I moved in with this family for like two months and stayed at their house and became best friends with them and they would help run me around and we literally called every yacht club in Africa trying to find a mast secondhand that I could buy to put in the boat because I couldn't afford a new mast and I you know had almost no money and thankfully my sponsors were just so incredible to resupply like the rigging wire the ropes like you know that's thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars and all of that had to get sent from Australia so then you got all the custom side of things and it was a mess but we yeah. got there yeah but by the time I left it was winter in the Southern Ocean. Oh, my goodness. And hadn't planned for that. I hadn't planned for that. Yeah. And, like, I did a lot of talking with people who had done a lot of Southern Ocean sailing and some who had done some winter sailing down there. And and the biggest thing that they could kind of tell me was that, A, it was just cold all the time, like a lot more cold. So freezing of ice on the rigging and, and things like that could be a problem. Um, but that the waves were going to be bigger. And by bigger, five metres bigger. Wow. So the average storm in summer would generate a swell height in the peak of the storm of about 10 metres in the Southern Ocean, whereas the average storm in winter was a peak of 15 metres. 15 metres? And that's the average. So then you get your sets come through. It could be 40% higher. The storm moves if you're trying to skirt the edges. Anyway, so it was this mess. So I still thought with the what the boat had gone through that we could do it. And so I left and as I left, the media got a hold of it and the world found out about it and I had so many people email, message, call my family. Like this guy got a hold of my mum's number, was phoning her saying, don't let your daughter leave at suicide. She's never coming home again if she does this. And, you know, all of this stuff was happening in the background. Wow. Um, then I got super seasick. So spewing my guts up off the side of the boat, trying to pass the shipping lanes below Cape Town, like, and which is a major shipping lane there. So there's like 16 ships coming at me at one point, and I'd like try and alter the boat's course, pause on, hit on autopilot, spew up off the side of the boat, and then keep going because <laughs> you've got no choice. Like there's yeah. no one else. Yeah. And, um, and then I got a massive head cold and a chest infection, and I couldn't shake the chest infection, and I had to after about five days of basically doing donuts, waiting for a gap across these major storms to get south of them to enter that racetrack kind of coordinates again. Um, 
I had to make a call on whether I felt I was healthy enough to continue because this flu was like knocking me for six. Yeah. And I decided that, yeah, I'd go through it, but we couldn't get south of these storms. So I, I had to go through the storms, not around them. And so I ended up like sailing for a day, hoving to for a day, sailing for a day, hoving to. But when I'd be hove to, I'm hove to in 15 meter breaking seas in the middle of the Southern Ocean with 80 to 90 knots of wind blowing over the boat. Wow. And so you're hove to, but then the boat will get hit by a wave, almost flipped upside down, come back upright. Sometimes I got hit by a wave so hard on the bow of the boat, it flipped the boat 180 degrees sideways and started sailing me again. And then I would like just hang out in bed and watch the autopilot and be like, oh yeah, it is it's driving me back to jibe and so I'd jibe back through and go back into Hove 2 from my bunk and like so it was just it was the most insane weather conditions I've ever sailed through well until the last trip but um, <laughs> <laughs> just to explain to the listeners what Hove 2 means yes yeah, so Hove 2 is a storm survival tactic so there's two tactics that are commonly deployed one is using a drogue which is like a sea anchor but the labor of deploying and recovering that particularly solo was so great that and given that I was doing it every couple of hours it was too high an intensity so the other option is hoving too and what you do is you have your sails balanced for the wind so you've got your reefs in or your storm jib up or whatever that is for the wind amount that you have and you tie the mainsail as tight to the center of the boat as you can and then you effectively most people will tack their boat into the position but leave the jib on the wrong side of the boat so it's backwinding the jib and then you tie your helm or your tiller or your rudder or whatever you've got so that it's driving the boat into the wind. So it's trying to turn you up into the wind. And the combination of forces means that as your boat gets powered up by the mainsail and gets steerage because the rudder gets flow of water, it tries to drive you up into the wind. As you drive up, because the mainsail is flat and tight and in the center of the boat, it depowers the mainsail. So it loses wind and then the, the jib is backed. So the wind fills the jib and pushes the bow away again. And you end up in this little kind of S's that you do kind of along the ocean, this little wiggling line where you kind of get driven up, pushed back, driven up, pushed back. But you can hold position there quite well. And on the more classic boats with the long keel, because you're getting pushed sideways pretty well, um, you create this body of slick on the surface of the ocean. And it has a very similar effect to what the old shipping industry used to use when they would pour oil on the surface of the water to calm the sea. And so the waves would hit this area of disturbed water, the slick, and they would either break on the edge of it because they're about to break anyway, or they would soften and go under the boat. So it creates this area of protection. Amazing. Yeah, it's a really, really amazing tool. So many people I know will do it just to like make dinner and have lunch. If you've got a medical emergency, put the boat hove too, drift sideways. You can deal, it's a more stable platform. You can get stuff done. And in storms, you might still be healed at like 45 degrees or even 60 degrees over, but you're stable at that position. You're not coming up and going back down again. Um, So it's a really, really handy technique. And for my boat though, because I'm a racing boat and I have a bold racing keel, like one of those long bold keels, um, I didn't have enough like displacement of water to create a big enough slick. Yeah. And so I, and I, 
because of the windage on the boat and the way the boat shaped, she would drive forward a little bit as well. So I would find the back three quarters of my boat would be protected, but the bow would be pretty well exposed to these waves coming through. So we definitely copped a few like really bad hits on the front of the boat there. Sometimes it sounded like it had cracked the hull because of the violence of the impact. And I'd have to get kitted up in my gear and climb out into the storm and hang my head off the side of the boat to check I haven't got a ruptured hull. Like it was just, yeah. And so, and while I'm in these storms, hove to, I would just try and sleep. Yeah, fair enough. Because the safest place to be was my bunk. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's actually a really um, good technique for. I don't know if uh, any of our listeners know this, but we've got a beautiful 1964 ex-Sydney to Hobart oh, timber yacht. Perfect and, technique uh, for a boat like yeah, that. Yeah, so, so we actually, um, we needed to get on her mid-pit water. Yes. Uh, so we were on um, a little speedboat from the Freedom Boat Club um, and John brought the boat hove too so that we could just hop on her, stop across really easily and then go off sailing without taking any of the sails down. So it's actually a really good way of of transferring people onto your boat as well, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. We do it also with the ladies of the Sea Regatta at the Royal Sydney Yacht Squadron. So all the um, coach changeovers, they'll try and get the boats hove to and then it's much, much safer for us to step up onto the boat. Yeah. 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 It's fantastic. Yeah. But I know people who every afternoon for their sundowners, for their one hour when everyone's on deck, they'll hove to and everyone just has a chat you know you've got plenty of water and sea room and yeah and they'll just hang out yeah love it you still move though you still I'd still be going five knots in those kind of winds sideways yeah and so depending on what tack I hove to on what direction I put the wind on I could choose whether it was pushing me closer to my destination or further away so it's a good technique in the sense that if you're closer to land depending on your wind direction, um, say you're 100 mile offshore but you don't want to be blowing to the land, you can hove to on the right direction that allows you to blow kind of parallel to the land rather than to the land. Mm. And you generally drift at around a 150 wind angle. So like imagine broad reach, it's kind of yeah. that drift line. Um, yeah, so it's it's a really great technique though. Yeah, fantastic. All right, so we've had a lot of drama here. Oh, Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> My life is in tethers at the moment. <laughs> but the, the the human brain is designed to cope with a moment like that mm. at the time and just do everything that you need to do to yeah. make yourself survive, right? That's, yeah, definitely. That's how the human body and brain works together. So you've done that. Yeah. You've achieved that. When did it hit? Even the like the restart of the record, like from Cape Town, was still kind of that survival mode. I did notice my behavior had drastically changed with my comfort factor and my trust in the boat. And it, it really took a lot out of me for my belief in my in what the boat could take or what I could take in the middle of the ocean or, or my understanding of that. And um, so I, I would find my anxiety would be really high in those storms. Every bad whack, I would have to check the mast was still there, that kind of behavior. Yeah. And that only continued to get worse the closer I got to Australia because it was like waiting for it all to go wrong again. Right. Um, and about a week and probably about a week out of finishing the record on that 2017 trip, um, I noticed that I was getting electrolysis again. Wow. And okay. that the the electrical cables were having issues again yeah. with the new rig set up and the new issues. And I was seeing the same signs and I was about to go into a storm that was going to give me 60 knot headwinds 
and I was freaking out freaking like I've got footage of me just bawling my eyes out on deck just like I couldn't I knew at that point if I had to go through a situation like that again I probably wouldn't survive it yeah and I just didn't want to have to face it you know (laughs) Um, I've done this I don't want to do it again (laughs) I've had that moment in time I've ticked that box moving on Um, but it wasn't, I guess, until a while later that I really started to understand like the effects of trauma on the body, mm. mental well-being, and and understanding how that would affect me long term. And so I arrived back on land into Albany, and I officially set the world record as the first woman to circumnavigate Antarctica with one stop. Yep, awesome, yep. great, amazing. I felt like I'd failed, and so the world celebrated it. And I was doing all this press, all these media interviews, all this stuff, and having to be the person that's happy with that result, whereas I felt like I hadn't achieved what I'd set out to achieve, and that was to break the world speed record and become the fastest person. Mm. And there's a couple of things around that. I never set out for a women's record because Mm -hmm. I don't see that there's any difference between guys and girls on boats. Like Mm -hmm. we're just sailors. Why should I have a women's record? Like. Why shouldn't I just be the fastest? Um, And also like I I didn't feel like because of the dismasking and everything, we lost a big chunk of momentum with the campaign, um, with the climate action stuff. And there was so much more I wanted to generate with that that I wasn't able to do because of everything else taking place and that I basically went into survival mode um, that I, I didn't feel like I'd done that justice either. And so I knew before I even set foot on dry land that I was going to attempt that record again. But I also knew mentally I wasn't in a fit state to do it then and there. Yeah. And then I came back from that project with nearly 400,000 in bills and debt. <gasps> and Ouch. Yeah, and no yeah. way of paying it. So I went straight into doing as many talks, as many events, the speaking circuit, doing you know fundraising events at yacht clubs and and I put together the the Magenta Project, like the all-women's team to New, um, the Sydney to Hobart. And that was like another 50000 that I had to find. And like, and I've not – like I've had success with sponsors, don't get me wrong, but I've not had that golden egg, that golden goose sponsor that steps up every time and goes, yeah, we believe in what you're doing. We want to support you. How much is it going to cost? Let's do it. It's yep. never been that easy. It's been a mix match of 40 or 50 different brands coming together to help me get going and I'm incredibly grateful for them but it makes it incredibly difficult to manage but also that whole idea of um, consistently trying to find that next 10,000 or that next 20 to to round off the budget Mm. and so I've never like I left for that project with nearly 300,000 in bills still to pay and the only way I would get an opportunity to do that was if I was successful with that project. So just coming off all the mental side of the dismasting and everything, you then had all the financial stress and the pressures mm. there. And it got to a point where I almost had to declare bankruptcy and sell the boat. Oh. And like, you know, and I knew if that happened, I wouldn't get another chance. And yeah. so I put together the Australia project because that helped me continue to fund the boat and helped continue that momentum with the media and all of that. And I also knew I wanted to do a project closer to home to give me a bit of time out of the Southern Ocean to just rebuild that trust back up and everything and and just kind of get my head around it. Um, And before I left for Antarctica, I had been debating about whether I would go for the nonstop solo around Australia record in a monohull. Um, And I decided at the time that it was actually more risky 
and had a higher chance of failure than doing Antarctica. Really? Massively so, yeah. Wow. So if you think about Antarctica as open ocean, you've got yeah. these big storms, you might have icebergs, but I've got techniques to avoid the ice. Um, if the boat can handle the storms, then you're in the middle of the ocean. There's yeah, not a lot to hit ocean. and there's no yeah. one there. Yeah. Around Australia, you've got traffic the whole way around Australia. You've mm -hmm. got reefs, rocks, islands. You've got changing weather patterns as the hot air off the land. So you're doing a lot more sail changes. You're still sleeping the 20-minute micro-sleep. So it took me 58 days and I didn't sleep for more than 20 minutes in 58 days. So just the mental draw on that. Um, and the biggest risk, I think, for me in a trip like that is actually your fiberglass fishing boats. You know, the little half cab yeah, yeah. runner out. Yeah, they go out a long way, don't they? They can be 10, 15 miles offshore. They don't yeah. have AIS. They don't have a radar yeah. reflector. They're fiberglass, so you can't see them on your instruments. No. The only way you can see them is looking forward. Yeah, got a good story on that one. <laughs> we were out on a cruise yeah. to Moreton Bay Island, so in a big cruise ship, yeah. right? And there's this little tiny, exactly one of those, tiny yep. little fiberglass fishing boat. Yep. And somebody on the cruise shop says, oh, look, there's a little boat. We need to go and rescue the little boat. <laughs> and, of course, as a ship, it is their requirement that they have to go and rescue the boat if somebody thinks that boat is in oh, trouble. Wow. So they're radioing this little Nobody's got their boat. radio on. Nobody's got their radio on. They're yep. not listening. So this cruise ship is suddenly coming down <laughs> on this little fishing boat I think he might have been a bit worried by then <laughs> and finally he answers his radio and they say are you okay and he says oh yeah I'm fine I'm just fishing <laughs> so then the cruise ship turns uh, around carries and goes on. away again <laughs> Oh, my goodness. So, please, all the little fiberglass fishing boats out Put there. Put a radar reflector. Radio reflectors and radios on. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, and it's just like when I'm going, like if I'm surfing waves, I've got good wind behind me, like I'll get the boat up to 20 knots. Like I've had her up to 28.3 knots napping in bed. Like it's yeah. – so you can't be barreling down waves and maybe have like – and there's areas where you can kind of plan that you're likely to have a higher quantity of these kind of boats out there. And so I'll be more on deck in those periods. But sometimes you can't see them till you're almost on top of them because yeah. of the size of the waves. And yeah, anyway, so that that was like one of the biggest things for me. Yeah. Um, but the trip did allow me to kind of process things a little bit, but it was actually writing the book. Okay. Because all of this time, so this is a year and a half after the record, I'm just still in that got to keep moving forward, got to keep going, I've got to figure out a way, there's got to be a solution, just keep trying, I'll find a way kind of mode. And yes. it's not, there's no recovery in that mode. There's no resting, no. there's no mental well-being. there's none of that. You're still in that kind of survival game of like, if I don't keep doing this, I lose everything. Yeah. Um, and so like I came to the to the writing of the book and, and this was like my gift from COVID is that I lost all my work that was lined up and I had the ability to sit and write the book. Mm -hmm. And so I forced myself to write the book and thankfully Australian Geographic had been an amazing partner of mine and they put their hand up to publish it. So they assigned me an editor and I was like, right, this is my window, let's get it done. But it was reliving all of those scenarios, re-going through the dismasting and trying to write it in a way that felt authentic but also put people in the boat in that moment in time mm. um it really forced me to kind of look at the broader picture of what went on in that situation and I came away from writing the book with the understanding that as terrible as that experience was without that experience I wouldn't be half the sailor I am today 
it made me so much stronger as a sailor because it showed to me in the biggest black and white case you could possibly see that I could go out and face an absolute worst case scenario at sea and I know that my preparation and planning is enough to allow me to survive it. Yeah. And so it instilled, once I really had that time to sit down and process it, it really did instill that confidence in me to know that the way I'm tackling things, my procedures, the risk avoidance that I have on the trips and the boat is the right technique. And it allowed me to really kind of come out of it stronger. Yeah. So that helped. And and then like 2021, we're still in COVID. <laughs> the world's still in, you know, going to the crap. Um, and basically I decided well, now's a good window. Let's get the boat prepped. And so I took the boat to Brisbane. Canva signed on as my first partner. It wasn't Fantastic. enough to get me to the start line, but it was really a huge amount of money to get me going. Yeah. And um, and so I made the commitment, all right, 2022, I'm going to go and do this project again. Um, so we refitted for six months. All the repair work in Cape Town was bad. And it had to be cut out and redone. All the glass hadn't gone off. It was still soft glass in it. Yeah, it was a weird, maybe it was old stuff that they used or something. But um, so all it, so, you know, it was like a $300,000 refit into the boat, plus then all the project costs and everything. Um, But the benefit of it was that I now have an opportunity, and we haven't really touched on this yet, but but the boat's called Climate Action now, and I run this big sustainability campaign. Is that when you put the fantastic... um little post-it note look all over that was way back in 2015 for the first Hobart yeah so I've been running that campaign for about eight years by this point um so what I do with the climate action campaign just for those who aren't familiar um and if you google a photo of the boat or maybe you can put it in the show notes but um it's filled with thousands of different post-it note messages all across the hull and each post-it note is an environmental action that somebody's already doing that I've met and they've seen the boat or they've emailed it to me from around the world Um, and it's their action that they're doing to make the world a better place and it can be absolutely anything so the whole idea is to show people that as an individual you have the power to create change It just starts with one action. Mm. And it could be something like Sally has short showers. Joe turns the lights off when he leaves the room. Bob picks up rubbish off the beach when he walks his dog. And it's throwing the power back to those micro decisions that we make every single day. Do I want to buy the laundry powder packaged in plastic or the one with cardboard? Do I want to buy the fruit packaged in plastic or the one that's loose? Like we make all these decisions every day and it's trying to show people that A, they matter, but you also have the ability to create a positive change in those situations. Um, So I've been running that for about, yeah, six years at this point. And just to explain to the the listeners who haven't seen Lisa's boat, uh, Lisa's boat was at Sydney Boat Show last year and it attracts a massive amount of attention (laughs) because it looks like a whole bunch of little colored post-it notes have been stuck onto it that's yes it. I'm assuming it's a wrap is it it is yeah, yeah. yeah so um it's really colorful it's really attention seeking um and it's a really clever idea because it's a whole bunch of messages or and then you I think you were having people write little messages I collect on messages at notes, every talk and event I still collect them we actually yeah. at the moment have a six meter long wall in the Maritime Museum in Sydney of post-it notes and we're collecting messages so it, yeah it's a growing campaign and I'm doing as much as I can with it and for anyone listening around the world if you go to the website and go to climate action now get involved you can actually email me your message and that will go on the boat for the next 
next project. So it's an active, ongoing campaign. So amazing. Such yeah. a good idea. But um, but that that let's del- delve into that now. That That is your real focus of having a message. So I know you know, You've said before you you don't sail for you now. You sail for this cause. Don't yes, you? definitely. So yeah. so it sort of started, I guess, with like the clipper race and stuff was like self seeking, um, and then when we did the clipper race, we sailed around the world, and there were sections of the ocean. Like we were at forty eight degrees south in the Southern Ocean between Cape Town and Australia. And I was helming the boat across a wave. And as I peeked on the wave, I saw a white styrofoam box in the water in the middle of the Southern Ocean, literally 2,000 nautical miles from land, Mm. in the most pristine, beautiful environment. And we're seeing that human impact. And then we had areas like particularly up past like Indonesia, China, across the North Pacific, where the pollution in the water was so thick, we had to assign a crew member to the bow of the boat with a boat hook to push the rubbish out of the way of the boat so we could sail through. Wow. Like it was just disgusting. Like, And there were areas where you just felt like the complete absence of life. Yeah. And like obviously like all of us sailors have noticed that the weather patterns are becoming unstable or hard to predict. They're not doing what they've always done. So all of these things like ultimately came to me deciding that if I'm going to do records, then I want to do them for a real cause that's going to make genuine impact. And that started with the climate action, which is still very much an active campaign. Wow. Don't worry. That interview does not finish there. I don't know about you, but uh, talking to Lisa is, has brought out emotions and uh, it's an incredible story that she tells. So we are going to do a second episode because she and I spent a good couple of hours chatting together and um, there's so much more to be told. So there will be a second episode of her coming out in the near future and I can't wait to share that with you all. It's such a pleasure to do these podcasts. I really enjoy bringing them to your ears. I hope you enjoy them as much as we do. Um, I do appreciate everybody that reviews the podcast and follows the podcast. That makes a big, big difference to how many people get to hear these amazing stories. So please, as soon as you've stopped listening to this podcast, if you could review and follow the podcast, I'd really, really appreciate that, as would Lisa, because of course, in this instance, the more funding we can get for Lisa to achieve what she wants to achieve, in turn, we can make a difference to the environment altogether. And that's really important. Thanks so much for listening, guys. I really appreciate it. I'll see you on the water soon.